Welcome to the Poets and Philosophers Podcast. I'm Abe. And I'm Sam. And we respect the great tradition. We're also brothers. Today, we're going to talk about disputation, which is a medieval practice of education. It used to be that education, as far as medieval education, involved two different parts. So the first part would be the lecture, in which a master would lecture on a, an authoritative subject. So if you're going to study rhetoric, you would study the work of Cicero. And they would the lecture would be on Cicero's books with the commentary by the lecturer and wrestling through the questions and the value of what Cicero is saying. And then later on in the day, you would have your disputation. And this disputation was in which a bachelor would come forward and this bachelor, which was a learned student, would give a thesis. And it was the goal of the students to attack this thesis one by one, giving different arguments. This was later on formalized more so in which it was a, a specific debate between two people with a pre- president who was kind of the referee between the two. And uh, that was the way in which disputation was formed. So first off, it was just several students talking with a more learned student on the subject until finally it was almost like a, what we would call like a formalized debate. So if you've done debate in school, it's very similar to what a disputation would look like, although there's some differences. Uh, this model of learning is what we want to look at today. So Sam, what other things can you help us understand about the disputation method? We, <clears throat> I think there's various people who talk about the benefits of understanding a topic from both subject, uh, from both perspectives, and this disputation method, the disputatio, will help you understand an issue from both sides, which will really aid comprehension. And one thing, you know, we're about to read uh, a section of Thomas Aquinas's um, Summa Theologica. And when you understand something from both sides, you make sure that you aren't straw manning the other person's side. And that's really the big issue. You want to wrestle with the best arguments in their best form. And if when you when you do that, you fortify your own replies to those objections. And it really aids uh, your own position and it aids I guess, you know, wisdom or, or you understand why you disagree, and it's not a superficial uh, position. You actually have a very well-founded position. So um, it's just a great way of thinking and arguing a point is to think on both sides, and this method helps you do that. Yeah, what I really enjoy about this method is that fact that you have to wrestle with what the other side says. Uh, It's... In our day, at least it seems that if in a public debate, um, a lot of times those who are debating are just talking past each other. But a benefit would have been would be to have the people in this particular debate go, all right, I want you to state the other person's side as well as you can. If that person were to state that side as well as they could, even to convince the other side and they go, Oh yeah, that's exactly my position. And then that person goes, now here's why that's wrong. I am much more likely to follow along with that person. If other than someone who would go, here's their position. And it's like a complete straw man. So here's two terms for you. A straw man is a fallacy that you basically build up the other person's argument. It's not very good. It's not at all what they believe. It's just a straw man argument. So an example of this would be um, when when you're arguing on, I don't know, where you want to go to eat. And someone says, well, you only want to go, you only want to go there because it's cheap, you know. And it's like, that's not all the reason why. I like the food there. So that's my argument is not because it's like the cheapest place to go. My argument is because it's like, 
I enjoy that food there. And so that's why I want to go there. Whenever you misrepresent somebody else's argument and make it weaker than it actually is, is a uh, steel man or is a, is a straw man argument. And I guess the more common vernacular today, at least as it goes with the intellectual dark web, is the term steel manning. So steel manning is the idea is that you is what summa is what the summa theologia does is it takes the opposition's argument and really works uh, and really shows it. And so I think it's worth not just talking about it in the abstract, but give you a concrete example of what this looks like. So we wanted to look at one of Aquinas's questions here. So some background to the Summa Theologiae. Sam called it the Summa Theologica, but it's technically called the Summa Theologiae, um, which is really funny uh, because it's because we there's another book actually that we were going to talk about. We said not to today, which is Peter Kreef's Summa Philosophica, and he purposefully. Um, calls it the Summa Philosophica because people call Thomas Aquinas's book the Summa Philosophica, uh, which is technically incorrect. And so he misspelled his just just to poke fun at people. Uh, Peter Kreef is a pretty interesting character when it comes to writing. I really enjoy his writing style. So that's that's another really good book as far as looking at the questions of okay. philosophy. And for my defense, uh, it's both. <laughs> it goes really both ways. So um, I guess if you were to go to Wikipedia, it's actually Summa Theologica, but it also says another way you can pronounce it is Summa Theologiae, uh, or th- I forget how you'd pronounce this in Latin. But um, anyways, it does go both ways. I think the standard way you normally say it is Summa Theologica or some variant with a C at the end. Oh, well, if you look at the introduction of... His book here, it does say, I deliberately misspell the title of this book, Summa Philosophica, instead of Summa Philosophae, because Summa Theologiae is usually misspelled Summa Philosophica by beginners. <laughs> so he's a nut, and I, I I like that because he does have a lot of personality in his books, even yeah, though it's a book on, uh, even though it's a book on, uh, you know, philosophy, what we think of me would be dry, arcane book. So back to uh, the Summa Theologiae, which is uh, Article 1, Question 9. And uh, this question, so let's just walk through this question here. I think it's really helpful. So his question is whether Holy Scripture should use metaphors. So that's his question. And then what he's going to do, he's going to ask or he's going to build several different objections to this question. So he starts off with the opposite view, and here's how he starts it off with. It seems that Holy Scripture should not use metaphors. That which is proper to the lowest science seems not to benefit this science. When he uses the word science here, he's using it in the ancient way, which just means body of knowledge, holds the highest place of all. But to proceed by the aid of various similitudes and figures uh, is proper to poetry, the least of all sciences so, the least of all knowledge. Therefore, it is not fitting to make use of such similitudes. So here's what he's saying is, is that his first argument is simply just, look, when we use similitudes, which is like metaphor and figures, uh, that should be proper for things like a poetry, because poetry is not really grasping at knowledge so much as it's grasping at other things like feelings or um, the sense of wonder and things that are very can be very abstract but also very unclear as far as what they mean by so many metaphors. And so why should Holy Scripture, because it's like the greatest science, it gives us the greatest truth, why should it be obfuscated by so many metaphors? It shouldn't be this way. This is first objection. His second objection is further this doctrine seems to indeed uh, seems to uh, intend to make truth clear. Hence, a reward is held out to those who manifest it. And then he says, they that explain me shall have life everlasting, quoting Syriac. But by such similitudes, truth is obscured. 
Therefore, to put forward divine truths by likening them to corporal things does not benefit this science. So, kind of a similar what I already said about the first objection. It's making truth obscure. Why would you go through the benefit of making some sort of truth obscure? And then objection three, he says, for the higher creatures are, the near the nearer they approach to the divine likeness. Uh, the higher the creatures are, the nearer they approach to the divine likeness. If therefore any creature can be rep- can be taken to represent God, this representation ought to chiefly be taken from the higher creatures, not from the lower. Yet this is often found in scriptures. <laughs> so. He's saying that, look, the higher the creature is, the more that they're like God. So why, why doesn't scripture use God is like a seraphim burning and flying, or God is like an, like the angelic beings doing this or doing that? No. <laughs> what do we find in scripture? God is a rock. <laughs> why? why? Why would scripture use that such a low brow, God is a rock sort of thing, or God is a tree, or God is a is a chicken or a hen uh, hovering over her chickens or her her uh, her broodlings. Like why would that, that, why would we do that? Because those are such low creatures. You would want to use the high best creatures to best represent God. So I, I would argue that these are really good arguments that would say scriptures shouldn't use uh, shouldn't use metaphor. I really I really like. Uh, just getting into these because it's like, man, like Aquinas really knows his stuff. He's really arguing well here, I believe. Now, I know this language may be very stilted, um, but I tried to explain it as best as I could. But anything, Sam, that you wanted to add so far in this point in uh, Aquinas's objections here? Yeah. Um, so I think it would be helpful just to back out and kind of see the outline about how every disputation goes there's five different parts the first part is the question so abe you read that this question is whether holy spirit or whether holy scripture should use metaphor now notice that this question is a disjunctive question it's a closed question there's only two answers right it's whether holy scripture should use metaphor it's either yes, it should, or no, it shouldn't. There are only two options here. It's not... Um, what is God? What is yeah, man? <laughs> Open-ended you know, stuff. Uh, what are the benefits of metaphor? And there's like two different sides. No, no, no. There's just, it's a d- disjunctive question having two different sides. And then when he goes into one side, so the objection is saying, no, it's not. That's the first side, right? There's three different lines of reasoning for no metaphor should not be used in scripture. Um, with every single one of these, I, um, I'm seeing now if that's true. Uh, yeah, at least maybe not the first one. It's, he argues his point. It's based on authoritative text. So it's Syriac or it's scripture, um, and normally his uh, authorities will be scripture, the patristics, um, or I guess here with where's Syriac? Is Syriac intertestamental? That yes, I no. You're gonna make me look this up. All right, you look uh, that up. But it's it's an authority that they would have. Uh, agreed on mm-hmm. um so yeah, it is part of the uh what are they called the deuterocanonicals okay so first is the disjunctive question secondly is one side of the um is one one position which uh here it's in the negative and then he's going to go said contra or on the contrary and then after that uh, that's the third step. Then there's the I respond that, which is the fourth step. And whenever he responds, normally he's gonna make he's gonna choose a, a middle way if he can. And the fifth. What do you step, mean by middle way? So he'll be saying that 
it is proper to use metaphor in scripture, but uh, it's not. Um, I'm actually. It's not completely proper. It's proper only for a limited reason. Um, so he's going to show that yes, using metaphor is very. Uh, it doesn't. Um, using metaphor is less accurate, but it's not accurate for a reason. And it's because we don't have the knowledge of God so accurately because God dwells in inaccessible light. He is so other, but well, that's why we knew that's why we need metaphor because God, you know, knowledge of him is very difficult to have. So, um, anyways, it's, it's, he, it's a mediated position normally Aquinas has. It depends on what question he's doing. And then the fifth step is he responds to the first objections. Anyways, that's the only thing I have to add so far. So the question, objection, the other side, the answer, and then responding to the objections. Yeah, I probably should have spelled it out a little bit just to give you guys a, a little bit of where we're going here. So yeah, so we've done, you could say the first half and the first half is just setting up the other side. And then Aquinas is going to go along to say, well, here's how we answer this. He'll go on the contrary. And so when he goes this on the contrary, it says, well, it is written. I have uh, from Hosea 12 and verse 10, I have multiplied visions. I have used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. Then he says, but to put forward anything by means of similitude is to use metaphors. Therefore, sacred science may use metaphors. So now his text of citing to, to combat the texts already used, uh, he says, look, Hosea says, this is what I've done. And so because scripture, does, because scripture says this, therefore, this is true. And then now he's going to continue on and develop this a little bit more. Like what Sam was saying about God's knowledge, and our, at least our knowledge of God is limited in its capacity. And so the best way to get about that is by metaphors and such. So here's what he says. It is benefiting, it is, sorry, it is befitting holy writ or holy scripture to put forward divine and spiritual truths by comparison to, with material things. So there's his thesis, all right? For God provides for everything according to the capacity of its nature. So here's a really cool, this is a doctrine, which is known as like the doctrine of accommodation. I really like this doctrine uh, a lot. I thought about it a lot. I, I shouldn't say I thought about it a lot, but it's a really cool doctrine to think about because when God speaks to us, he speaks to us according to our capacity. And we don't have the capacity for heavenly things completely just yet. So he has to accommodate his language. Um, now, it is natural to man to attain intellectual truths through sensible objects. So we can learn things by what we sense because all our knowledge originates from sense. So he is not, uh, yeah, there's no Cartesian doubt here. Hence, in Holy Writ, spiritual truths are fitly taught under the likeness of material things. So because we learn by our senses, why shouldn't God use his uh, material world to explain those heavenly truths to us? This is what Dionysius says. We cannot be enlightened by the divine rays except they be hidden within the covering of many sacred veils. Oh, it's just a good comment. So going back to even what Paul says, we, we see now in a veil dimly lit, um, but later on when all things will be made clear to us. So when it comes to knowing God, there's just like, there's going to be a veil that we're going to know about God, but not him in his true nature. It is also befitting of holy writ, which is proposed to all without distinction of persons, to the wise and to the unwise, I am a debtor. I am a debtor, says Paul in Romans 1.14. That spiritual truths to be expounded by means of figures taken from corporal things, so bodily, physical things, in order that thereby even the simple who are unable to grasp intellectual things may be understand it. So here's a very democratic point he makes from the second end here, where he says, look, 
there are some people who can grasp things without the concrete thing. But God wants to give his word to all people. And so he's going to use the common vernacular. He's going to use the common explanation of things. And he's going to use a very low brow way of saying things because he wants all people to understand it. And uh, if you're a preacher or a Bible class teacher, or if you've preached much, what is like the one thing people remember from your sermons? Sam, let me ask you that on the spot here. What is like the one thing people remember from your sermons? Yeah, it's normally a well-told illustration. Yeah, that well-told illustration. Like some people like even will talk to me about my sermons. Like, oh, the one you told the uh, the caterpillar pillar story, or you know, oh, the one where you talked about something along at Dairy Queen. You know, like that's where people will remember my sermons because that's the story I told within it to illustrate some sort of point. <laughs> and so, why would so he's saying it's good that God would do this because it helps get his truths to us, even if they're obscured by a metaphor, it's helpful. So that's the I answer that section there. And then the last section, like what Sam already said, he is going to take each one of those first objections. So the, the objections about, um, you know, why would God use lower creatures to explain deeper truths? Why would God use metaphor if it complicates or obscures the truth of things? And that first objection, which would be, um, why would it use uh, similitudes, which is proper to poetry, but poetry is the least clear or the least scientific of all forms of speaking. Why would it use that if we're talking about Holy Scripture, which should give us the most clear things of all? And so he responds to those. Um, and so here's his response to that first one we just said there. Poetry makes use of metaphors to produce representation for it is natural to man for man to be pleased with representation. So sometimes his arguments are not based on what Sam was saying there, a, uh, an authoritative source, but sometimes he bases his arguments simply on, uh, self-evident things. So for it is natural to be for man to be pleased with representations. Like who's going to be, who's going to argue with that? Like it's really, I think it's really difficult for anybody to argue with that because it's just self-evident. Like people love stories. People love images. People love uh, representations. Uh, you know, like John, my youngest, or my, my oldest son, um, he, he can quickly pick out things that aren't actually the thing, but the representation. Like if I draw a circle with six dots in it and a line dividing that circle, that's a ladybug. Like he just knows that. He knows the representation. It's not an actual ladybug, but oh yeah, that's a ladybug, you know. And he'll want me to draw that just about everywhere because he really loves ladybugs. So he gets that. And then the second one here, the second objection is, the ray of divine revelation is not extinguished by sensible imagery wherewithin it is veiled. So he's saying, look, it's not, um, the truth is not veiled, is not uh, distinguished or extinguished. So it's not worse that it's off this way. And it's truth so far remains so far that it does not allow the minds of those to whom the revelation has been made to rest in the metaphor but raises them to the knowledge of truths. So what he's saying there is, look, people who get up too obsessed with a metaphor of the thing and not the actual thing itself, they've got, the, they've got a problem and that's not good. But a metaphor should push us forward, not lock us into one way of looking at things. Um, and through those to whom the revelation has been made by others also may receive instructions in these matters. Hence, those things that are taught metaphorically in one part of Scripture in other parts are taught more openly. So that's a really good point, too, is that Scripture is not always going to speak on metaphor about the same exact thing, but sometimes he's going to explain things in metaphor, but sometimes he's going to be more clear. But sometimes when it's more clear, it's hard to understand, so we use that metaphor to help us understand the more clear part of what a thing is said. And so I hope you're seeing... 
the brilliance of Aquinas here being laid out to us as far as like, man, like this is really good. <laughs> the very, so then we says here, the very hiding of truth in figures is useful for the exercise of thoughtful minds as a defense of ridicule to the impious, according to the word, do not give what is holy to dogs. Matthew seven, verse six. So by that metaphor, there is a, there is a selective, uh, yeah, there's, you can be selective with uh, metaphors because metaphors, they land on some people who are really concerned about what's being said, but for other people, they just scoff at it going, well, he's just talking about, you know, a sower and fields and stuff. Who cares? Um, but the person who understands and really wants to know the truth goes, oh, no, no, there's something deeper here and I have to dig deeper to get in. So it's a good way to divide people. That's how Jesus used the parables themselves. The third objection, or the reply to the third objection, as Dionysius says, it is more fitting that divine truth should be expounded under the figures of less noble than of noble, nobler bodies. So here's that thing about why doesn't he use angels and seraphim to talk about things? Um, and this is for three reasons. Firstly, because thereby men's minds are better preserved from error, for it is clear that these things are not literal descriptions of divine truths, which may be open to doubt had they been expressed by under the figure of noble bodies. So people would have thought, well, he's literally like a seraphim. He's literally, but no one's going to go, God is literally a rock <laughs> or God is literally a hen. They would more likely conclude that no, God is this flying, burning creature with six wings walking around if he was compared to a seraphim. But no one's going to do that if it's just a, a chicken or stuff, uh, that sort of thing. And then secondly, secondly, because this is more benefiting the knowledge of God, that we have this in life. For what he is not for he is not clearer to us than what he is. Therefore, similitudes are drawn from the farthest of things away from God, form within us a true estimate that God is above whatsoever what we may say or think him. So he's kind of restating what we just concluded there. And thirdly, because thereby divine truths are better hidden from the unworthily. So there's the going back to do not give what is holy to dogs, uh, that whole thing there. So um, is uh, if you haven't read much of the Summa and you really like this kind of stuff, there's, he, he's got like, you know, 30, 300,000 words dedicated to this. And you can pick up the Summa pretty much anywhere for like, you can get the Amazon book for like a, a buck even, or buying it in paperback is actually pretty expensive because I'm not sure who uh, produces it anymore. But you can even find, I'm, I'm using right now just a web page um, to, to look at this. So I hope you've seen a lot of what is gone on here with it so sam what are some thoughts that you have right now about the disputation method and uh what benefits do you see from this method um first just on like first impressions uh i remember so a remember we took that course at knox on uh thomas aquinas's theology and yeah. i remember i was in I was in Craiova, Romania for this class. I remember sitting with my Thomas Aquinas book on my bed. And I think it was this, this, uh, this article that we just uh, read. And I was just blown away by how Aquinas goes about arguing and thinking through things. The second thing is how dense it is. You say that, you know, 300,000. Um, here I see that uh, the Summa Theologiae or Theologica has 2,669 questions. He writes so much, but that's not really the amazing part. What he writes is so dense. And he writes, you know, if you ever write a book about the uh, Summa, it's going to be a lot more than what Aquinas wrote. It's so dense, and every time you explain it, yeah, you're going to have to unpack it. And it's just, 
I don't know, as, as we kind of just went through it, you kind of see the benefits of reading his work, but also thinking through, uh, the, this disputation method. So it's just great. It's a great way. Um, one, the summa is a great thing to read, but also how to think on both sides is very helpful. Um, I do think there's a lot of times where someone may, you know, it could be, um, if you're having a discussion on scripture and someone brings in a passage um, that is only one-sided, um, so let's say, um, you know, uh, you know, works can't save. You can go to Romans. Um, you know, there is no work, you know, um, that will save you. And then someone says, whoa, hold up here. Go, go to this other passage. I'll show you where, you know, James says this or Peter tells you to be baptized or something. Um, and you take someone away. You never actually deal with their passage. Aquinas doesn't do that. He doesn't run away from people's arguments and show his own argument. He normally gives his own argument, and then he goes back and he replies to every single line of reasoning the opposing view had. And that's something that I generally don't do. I try to, you know, I'll say, I, I understand what you're saying, but it still doesn't make sense to me because of this over here. I actually never resolve their way of thinking, and I really should. Um, so, yeah, th those are kind of my initial thoughts from this disputational method. Yeah, in this uh, format, um, my wife did a lot of debate and speech when she was in uh, she was in college, and there's a certain debate format. I think she called it the West Coast debate format. And the West Coast debate format, whenever you give a particular point, uh, arguing for your side of things, then that other person, the other side, has to somehow respond to that point, or that point follows through in other words they score that point in the debate process and so their debate practice is like training them to respond to everything the other person says or else they can get a lot of points now you can abuse that and just create like a you know 60 not 60 you could probably don't have the time limit to do that but like 10 or 12 points that you're making so you just mess around with your opponent and just game the actual game itself to win but what i like what he's doing here is he is taking some really good arguments uh, as far as what uh, what the other side would say about using metaphors. Now, I wouldn't have thought to, to talk about whether Scripture should use the metaphors or not. Like, that's not something like, you know what? Why does Scripture do that? At the same time, I think all of us have thought about why isn't God more clear about this particular subject? I think we've all thought that thought before. But metaphor is that vehicle in which things that are uh, hard to understand can become clear to us because they are relatable to us. So it's a weird, long uh, argument that he has here, this long article. It's not very long, but it's, it's dense. So it's, it's deep here that he's talking through here. But it's very helpful for us. So like we've talked about the Socratic method and um, different forms of teaching. Like God knows that when he's that human beings, we can't just take in information one time in the most clearest way it's presented to us. No, we need more than that. We need ways that are talked to us to explain to us that are indirect, that relate to our senses versus just pure unadulterated truth of the matter, you know. And when we read scripture, we can think about that idea that God has written to this for us to understand. And I think some people don't understand that about scripture. They think of it, sometimes scripture, parts of it are just so hard to understand that it's just impossible for us to know. Maybe, maybe there's part to that, but for the most part, it is written for us to be able to understand it. Yeah. And uh, also notice that this is the first part of the Summa. So the very first thing he's going to start doing is saying, okay, we're going to start talking about God. 
let's start talking about language. You know, how do we go about knowing our object, which the object of theology is God? Um, how do we go about knowing God? Well, we have to first investigate the language, you know, the tools that we're trying to understand him. So that's one of the reasons why he's here talking about metaphors, because he's trying to think, hey, we have language. Is this actually uh, going to communicate the knowledge that we need about God? He's like, ah, it actually won't. But that's why we have metaphor. Yeah. And that's God is so holy other than us that we cannot know him fully. But scripture does give us parts of God that we can know and metaphors to understand him. So that's that's helpful for us. So he's going to spend, uh, as far as the summa logica go, theologi- theologi goes, um, he's going to spend a lot of time on God's existence, his nature, but he's going to do it using this format. And I think this format is very, very helpful. But if you're somebody who not only want to look at um, theology in this format, he's actually going to jump into a lot of things that aren't just theology. Um, he's going to talk a lot of, well, he's going to talk a lot about morality and other such things. Like he talks a lot about political philosophy also. And um, I remember reading parts of it on Aquinas's delineations of fraud and how to be a good business person when you're selling things and agreeing upon things and to charging prices. And I, I remember reading that just looking like, like this guy really, like, what has he not thought about as far as when it, theology and scripture. And when he brings passages or texts to bear on it, it's really, really helpful. Um, sometimes would, he goes pretty far on it and he'll grab texts that like, well, is that, could, should we consider that an authoritative text? But you have to recognize that he is a Catholic uh, in the sense of he is coming from the tradition that um, the early church fathers had more authority than what what many of us would consider that it's authority to have even today. And so we have to understand that whenever we approach uh, Thomas Aquinas, because he can go off on the rails as far as being uh, dependent on some of these authorities too much versus the, the scripture and the text of God. So what else were we going to say? Um, not, not just using the sources, but how he goes about using scripture too. You might be thinking, What? That's how, you know, I think today we have this, you know, historical grammatical approach to scripture, which is very scientific. We have to understand a text in context where Aquinas and, you know, Augustine, many people before him, they, they, they would pick out a verse and use it on its own. Um, normally you would think that they're not being that responsible with their Bibles, but, um, I think that's a whole episode that we need to probably have in the future on how the patristics actually used um, scripture and they thought much more poetically than they did scientifically. And I think Owen Barfield uh, would really help us think through how the the patristics used scripture. Um, anyways, you might think well, that... Even to go even further with that, we'll... we'll- We'll definitely do an episode on this, but even the New Testament authors themselves use scripture very poetically. I mean, you cannot read the first couple of chapters of Matthew's gospel and go, all right, now how is Matthew using the scientific or the historical grammatical method to explain, you know, uh, Rachel reaps, or is it Rachel reaps for her children? A voice in Rama is heard, Rachel reaps for her children. How do you explain that with Herod murdering all of the, the the infants or the toddlers, boys in that area? I mean, there's a way to understand that, but it is like very thick. And uh, it's it's one that I will wrestle with. Or he shall be called the Nazarene are some texts that come to mind when as far as them quoting scripture to apply to it. Yeah, out of um, Egypt. Not that I don't think that the historical grammatical method has its place. I That's typically what I use. But I think there's also... A place for us to expand that and even to to use the disputation method to actually jump into that topic of how to best interpret scripture so um yeah i so, I, I thoroughly enjoy this abe when we start talking about the disputation method um how would you use this as a teacher um like in class okay you i think you teach a, a sunday class mm-hmm 
um, I forget your topic, but how yeah, we're, would you? We're go- studying how to study the Bible. Okay, how would you use this in, um, in, in class? So, last yeah. last a quarter, I was talking about apologetics, and I did try to do this to some degree. Like what I would do, at least at the end of the class, I I did some research as far as all right, what are some of the best arguments against the resurrection of Jesus, you know, and I looked up some Bart Ehrman quotes and I showed them that. And um, I wanted to, I wanted to show them like, what are the best arguments against that? Because a lot of times what happens whenever I read Bible class material is that whenever the person who's writing about the other side, whether it's um, the progressive Christianity or secularism or atheism, a lot of times they will use very general arguments and even sometimes they'll straw man the argument. So I want to make sure that whenever I'm talking with my students, like I think these are the best arguments against what I'm talking about. And I want to show them that so that I can say, now here's why they're wrong. So that's what I'll use. Um, That method I think is kind of called like thesis antithesis sort of thing to show both sides. And that's really helpful. But when I'm teaching, um, when I'm teaching other things too, um, the disputation method can really come out whenever you're willing to play devil's advocate and yeah. just take that opposing side and just have your students squirm a bit. <laughs> Do you really believe? Wait a second, you know. And I think that can help them come out. Now that's more Socratic, but I have not like had them write down an article format because. I just haven't done that yet. Maybe I will at some point. Probably not. Yeah, I do think that it's really good, not even for you to play devil's advocate, but for you to ask your um, your students or your audience, what would the other side say? Um, what are their best arguments? And they, you know, profound questions lead to profound thinking. And they are, and allow there to be silence for a while. You know, if you're ever talking about, um, you know, uh, I don't know, Calvinism or uh, the incarnation or anything, just ask a question that um, will make them think on the other side and what what leg do they have to stand on? Um, And that I, I think that would be great teaching. And then when they do have an answer, then you go and try to say, okay, now try to think through that. How would you respond to someone who says that? Um, that's a way to pull it out, not just playing devil's advocate. And there's another thing when you are presenting one side, if you are playing devil's advocate, my biggest thing is to be very respectful of that side um, because there are a lot of people who believe opposing views and, um, I think sometimes when people play devil's advocate, it's very um, smug, smug. Yeah. And, or, or you just have a very intelligent teacher and he kind of revels in, you know, how he's stumping his students right now. And he feels really cool about it where, I don't know, I kind of just see through that. And I think that makes me feel small, but um, I think, yeah, to get your students to think from the other side is is one way to actually use this in class or or if you're teaching your children and, um, you know, ask them to think from the opposing view. Yeah. And this this method is really what's helpful and what's necessary about the a liberal arts education is getting those multiple perspectives because there's this presupposition from those who are against a classical education or a liberal education and their view is that um to use their terms if just for a moment here that the dead old white men of europe were a monolithic culture that they all thought the same and all the books that we have written by these dead old white men from europe which is they're not all from europe but and they're not all white and they're not all men, but that's beside the point. 
they all have this monolithic. They all believe the same thing. They all taught the same things to reestablish the patriarchy and the power that they had. And like, if you read that stuff and you, and you begin to actually take each person from face value, there are extreme disagreements between them to a point to where that's where the learning comes in. It's to learning their disagreements and really where this method, at least from my research on this method came about was that when they would be reading the uh, patristic authors, even the patristic authors of the church, so those after the time of the apostles, even they disagreed with one another when it came to specific issues. And so they would argue these issues about what is true and what is not as true through this, this method of teaching. And that, to me, is the one of the benefits of a liberal arts education is not only are you seeing different views on the same subject, but you are grasping at them in a way that you are understanding here is how to actually argue different views on the same subject. Because once you can like play around with an idea that way, once you're so good as to be able to play devil's advocate to where you can convince people on your side that you actually believe these things, you know the subject. And then you can move forward and demolish it just like uh, Aquinas here demolishes this idea that scripture shouldn't use metaphor. I mean, I, he, he does it so just so succinctly, like he just like obliterates this idea that people shouldn't use metaphor. And, but here's the thing though, there are some preachers out there. There's some ways of teaching that, you know, all little stories for little people or small tales for small minds that we just shouldn't tell stories when we teach or we just shouldn't use analogies or ideas like that. And it's like you know, the best preachers that the best sermons we can think of use those things to a great degree. Um, you know, like the, the main, the most famous sermon you would say would be like a Jonathan Edwards, a sinners in the hands of an angry God. Um, you read that sermon, I mean, it's full of sweet metaphors, you know? It's like a spider crawling over an everlasting flame that's going to, you know, that's a, you're on a spider web on an everlasting flame underneath and just one small step of falling in. And it's like such a beautiful and terrifying idea what he brings out to you. Um, so that is good. So uh, anything else, Sam, you want to add to this before we wrap it on up here? What would the world look like if people were actually to think through both sides? What would Facebook look like if they weren't really interested in just convincing the other person? You see, this is where I think Aquinas was kind of lonely. I don't think anyone would actually make Aquinas think that hard. So he had to go against himself because he could probably convince anyone of, you know, um, if someone was willing to listen, he could probably convince anyone, but, um, he realized he was probably, you know, again, he was very, very intelligent. He realized that even people who argue for a certain viewpoint, they're not, there's actually better arguments out there that they're not even using. So if, if, if on Facebook or wherever you argue, um, if you don't just take the person's arguments and think through them, but try to think about more arguments that would promote their view um, to get a better understanding and then, and then think through uh, the, the truth of the whole matter. So I, I think the world would be, um, again, this is something too that requires a lot of listening and mm -hmm. uh, you need to be able to listen to the, someone's viewpoint. And like you said earlier, Abe, if you can actually state their position to where they, they say, yep, that's it. That's exactly what I believe. And that's why I believe it. Um, yeah, that would be, uh, I think we'd live in a, a different world. Yeah. What happens typically just to be more cynical is that there's the no true Scotsman fallacy looms large. Every time you try to restate somebody's position, because it doesn't matter how you explain their position. They'll go, well, that's not what a so-and-so believes, or that's not my position. And then they'll just like, re and you, they'll use like the basically the same words that you just said. So 
we have to recognize that. I know some you were like, well, what if the whole world did this? And I'm like, listen, man, like the world, I'm pretty skeptical about the whole world doing anything like that. Um, I think, yes, that would be a great world to live in, but we have to understand that rhetoric is the thing that rules the day when it comes to any sort of discussion most of the time. Like there are a lot of people who can see through that, but when it comes to the general, when whoever can have the best rhetorical argument, not logical argument, rhetorical argument, they're going to be able to persuade people to their, to their side of things. So, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't use these arguments because there's obviously people out there who enjoy this sort of thing. Um, so, uh, have at it. And I, I hope you're, you're, you're going to read some of uh, Aquinas's uh, Summa Theologiae. It's a really fantastic. And maybe you'll pick up Peter Kreef's Summa Philosophica because he's trying to think like more people should be doing this and writing this way because it is a crystal clear way of jumping in and learning things. So, all right. Um, thanks so much for listening to our episode. Just a few things to say. Um, we have a book club that we are starting up here. Sam is, I think he's getting together a reading list for us to look at before we jump into, well, before we jump into the actual book club itself. So in our show notes, there'll be a link to where to go to sign up. It's on Element, which you just got to create a login and password and you can just jump right in and uh, join our conversation and join our book club. And so it's just a chat room and we'll probably have times of discussing the book or talking about the great tradition or anything we want to do as we gather around these, uh, this great uh, work that's been set before us by our, by those who've come before us and thought about these ideas. And so uh, definitely would, do that. I would say that I think the topic for the first book club is going to be around the idea of what makes something right. Um, what makes something uh yeah, like morality, you know, what, what makes something right. And we're going to do a few readings from various passages, um, from various ancient passages that talk about um, the basis of make something being right or wrong. All right. So if that's something you're interested in, which you should be, then you should jump on to the, uh, the book club on the, on the link there on Element and uh, join in with us. So... Thanks for listening to our podcast on uh, Disputation Method and how that's a great way to learn more. So we'll talk to you guys in the next episode. Have a good one. <laughs>